Hello, and welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. In our series, we pray together through division, our disappointment and discouragement, and to trust for God's plan and direction for the church. In today's episode, we'll see how revival comes when the people of God pray through suffering to reveal and live the victory of Jesus Christ as we prepare our hearts for Easter. Today, we conclude our series, Praying Together Through, with a message entitled, Distress. Here's Associate Care Pastor, Josh Masters. Then he'll call me someday to my home far away, where forever his glory I'll share. That's what we begin to prepare ourselves for this week, isn't it? Good morning, Brookwood. Happy Palm Sunday. I'm glad that you are here this morning. We're going to do two things today. First, we're going to conclude our series on becoming a praying church called Praying Together Through. But we're also, as we do that, we're going to start to begin to prepare our hearts for Easter, which is next week. And I'm so grateful for your participation and your support during this series. So many of you have come to me and told me incredible stories about what God has done in your prayer circles and the divine appointments that he put in place. But I believe that this is just the beginning of what God wants to do through Brookwood Church and through this movement of prayer. Do you believe that? Then we have to keep moving forward together beyond the series. And let's take just a few moments to recap where we've been and how we can continue to move forward together. Now, these first couple things, just so you're not confused, that I put on the screen are not fill-ins for this week. This is a recap. I'll tell you when we get to our fill-ins, okay? In week one of this series, we dedicated ourselves to come together in a wave of ongoing prayer so that we could see revival. So the church must pray together through division, into unity. Unity with God, unity with one another. Then in week two, we looked at how the enemy, how Satan tries to use our discouragement to break that unity, how he tries to prevent unity in the church. So the church must also pray together through our disappointments into trust. Trust in God's plan. Trust that God has a plan and that he is good. Then once we begin to trust God's plan in week three, we prayed for God's direction in our lives and God's direction at Brookwood Church. So the church must pray together through uncertainty into confidence. Not confidence in ourselves, of course, confidence that God will act, that God not only has a plan, but it is a good plan and he will act when we come to him in faith. And if we want to see true revival, we have to continue to pray together through these things long beyond the series, after the series ends. These things have to become part of who we are. They have to become part of our culture. They have to become part of our identity, that we pray together and we fast together. Brookwood Church will never be known as a church of revival until it's known as a church of prayer and fasting. And I want to thank those of you, speaking of fasting, that reached out to me this week. After last week's message, some of you fasted for the first time, and several of you came to me and told me how you heard from God in a new way, that you felt connected to God and to the Spirit in a new way. 
And we need to continue to not only pray together, but to fast together. Jesus commanded us to fast. The early church continued to fast even after they received the Holy Spirit. We see it in Antioch. We see it in Galatia. Paul's ministry included fasting. His ministry to the church included fasting. His ministry to married couples included fasting. Fasting is not outdated. It's not for the super spiritual. It's for every believer, and it's a vital part of our worship, and it's vital to bringing revival to this community. So as we pray and fast together, what steps can we take to move forward? Beyond this series, how do we move forward together? Here's a few things. First, and most importantly, regular prayer and fasting with your community groups and your family. Set a schedule, set a time with your group, with your family, with your friends to pray and fast together in a regular way. If you need resources on fasting, how to get started, you can go to brookwoodchurch.org slash fasting. We're going to keep that site up. You can also join us for Sunday morning prayer time. We come here every Sunday morning and a group of us pray together right in front of this stage or online in Facebook or in our online campus. And we pray together every Sunday morning at 8.15 for our services, for our church, for our community, for our nation. And you can join us. You don't even have to show up. If you can't come every week, or then come once a month. The first week of the month. Come pray with us at 8.15. We've got about 40 people who come every week. But what if it was 400 people? What if it was 4,000 people? All coming together in intercessory prayer on Sunday morning for lives to be changed in this room. We're going to do it for Easter. We'll be here at 8.15 right in front of the stage Easter morning to pray for the Easter services. Come join us. Also, you can join one of our intercessory uh, or watchers prayer teams, one of our prayer teams. The intercessory prayer team prays for the, the prayer requests that come into the church, prays for the needs in our community and for our people. The watchers prayer team prays specifically for Brookwood Church and sets a time apart every day, just a few moments to pray for the needs of Brookwood Church. You can join those by going to brookwoodchurch.org prayer. Those are ongoing disciplines that we need to do if we want to see revival. We need to continue so that it's part of our culture. And those are things that we can do ongoing, but I'm really excited to share something that we're going to do so that we can continue to proclaim God's glory and seek his direction for Brookwood Church. It's going to be kind of an exclamation point at the end of this series. Are you ready? Five of you are ready. Listen, what we're going to do, because this is so important, this movement is so important, we're going to take the 16 prayer prompts that we've had throughout this entire series, we've put them into a prayer guide, and we're going to do a prayer walk together around this church building. And we're going to do it tomorrow morning. So I want you to join me tomorrow for a prayer walk, Monday, April 11th at 7 a.m. I know it's early, but it's vital to the unity of our church, and we're going to meet in the amphitheater. Many people call this week, this coming week leading up to Easter, they call it Holy Week. And what better way to prepare our hearts for Easter and pray for our church than to come together on the morning of the first day of Holy Week and walk around the perimeter of this church in guided prayer together. So I will meet you in the amphitheater. I will be out there 
Tomorrow morning, the prayer walk's only 30 minutes, so you still have time to get to work and go to school. You got plenty of time, and we will give you everything you need to participate. All you got to do is be at the amphitheater ready to walk at 7 a.m. Remember, we're walking, so you got to be there before we leave. Who will come? Even if you didn't raise your hand, you can still come. (laughs) But thank you to those who did. Listen, this is not the end of our series, but it can be the launch of an ongoing, transforming prayer movement among our people. But we have to pursue God's direction. We have to pursue revival. And when we do that, we have to be aware that the enemy will attack. Because there's evil in this world. And I don't say that lightly. We will face attack, we will face trials, and we will even face suffering. We'll face persecution and danger. Personal attacks, family attacks, church attacks. So today we're going to learn how to pray together through that pain. The church must pray together through suffering into victory. This is your first villain. The church must pray together through suffering into victory. Whose victory? Jesus Christ. And there's no greater prayer of suffering than Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. So that's what we're going to look at today. It's found in Matthew 26. It starts in verse 36. So you can go ahead and turn or swipe there in your Bibles. If you're using the Bible available here at Brookwood, it's on page 797, 797. Now, this is just after Jesus shared the Last Supper with his disciples. They left the upper room with Jesus and they came here. And these prayers in the garden represent Christ's last moments of freedom, at least here on earth, before he's betrayed by Judas and arrested on his way to the cross. Moments before. We pick up the story in Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with them, this is after the Last Supper, then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. So as Jesus brings the 11 remaining disciples to Gethsemane, who's missing? Judas. He tells eight of the 11 to sit and wait while he goes further into the garden to pray. But he takes his three closest friends with him. And that's where he becomes overwhelmed with emotion and anguish and distress. Verse 38. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay stay here and keep watch with me. Jesus is filled with so much anguish, so much grief, that it feels like he's dying. Have you ever had that feeling? Like the weight of your grief is so heavy on your chest that you can't breathe? That the grief seems unbearable? Like you'll never survive it or get past it? says he was crushed 
with grief. And what brought him to that state? Why do you think he is so broken in this moment emotionally? What brought him to this place of distress and anguish? Shout it out. His love for people? He knows what's coming. And what is coming? The cross. The cross is coming. And it's certainly the physical suffering that he's about to adore. That is bringing him grief, but it's also more than that. Remember in week one of the series when we talked about how there's perfect unity between Christ and the Father? That Jesus had lived in perfect union with the Father since the beginning of eternity? Well, he knows in just a few hours that unity is going to be broken. And after living a perfect life, Jesus knows that he's going to be separated from the Father, and for the first time in eternity, he will be alone. And in week two of our series, we talked about God's wrath. Do you remember that? How severely a holy God must deal with sin and disobedience. Well, in a few hours, Jesus will take on the full consequences of God's wrath. He'll take on the wrath that was meant for us, all of it. He's about to become sin and take generations of mankind's punishment on his shoulders. Look at 2 Corinthians. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, or more literally, to become sin itself, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Our suffering is real, and I don't want to minimize that, but there is no suffering that we will face that is greater than this suffering. So as we look at how Christ approached his darkest hour, we'll see how to approach suffering in our own lives, how to approach suffering in our church together as a body. And what's the first thing Jesus does? We've already read it. What's the first thing Jesus does? Even before he prays. What's that? Communion with his friends, right? He brings friends with him. He surrounds himself with the closest and most trusted friends that he has. So in times of distress and anguish, we pray with prayer partners. In distress and anguish, we pray with prayer partners. Most of the time, Jesus went off and he prayed by himself. But in his darkest hour of grief, he brought his three closest friends to pray with him. Not all of his friends, just his most trusted friends. Now, as we're going to see in a few minutes, they don't end up being that helpful. But there's a reason for that, and we'll see why. But Jesus says to them, stay here and keep watch with me. Keep watch with me. That phrase in the original language has a connotation of both prayer, intercessory prayer, as well as staying spiritually alert. And notice what Jesus says. He doesn't say stay over there and be spiritually alert. He says, keep watch with me. He's inviting Peter and James and John to enter into prayer with him. 
staying spiritually alert, knowing what is about to happen, and interceding on his behalf. Again and again, Scripture tells us to pray for one another's burdens, to carry one another's burdens, to be in our burdens together because a burden in one part of the body burdens the entire body. And we can't go through all those verses today, but I strongly encourage you, read through the passages that are the cross-references in your outline, whether it's here physically or in the online. We're called to pray together through our burdens. But if that is the case, why does Jesus only bring three? If you're in that much pain, if you're in that much suffering, why not bring everybody? Why not circle the wagons and bring everybody that you know into prayer with you? Why only three? What do you think? Have I turned you people afraid of me? Like, like Perry? Why do you think he only brings three instead of the whole crew? They knew him at a deeper level. Yes, thank you. So here's the deal. Some people are not spiritually mature enough to be in that place of anguish with you without making it worse or without making it about them. There are two types of friends in a crisis. The kind of friend that says, God is this way, let's walk out of the mud together. Let's go towards God out of this mud together. And the second kind of friend is the kind who loves the mud and will roll around in it with you. You don't want mud dwellers in a crisis. You don't want mud dwellers in a crisis. They're what we call codependent. And if you want a full explanation of codependency, you can join us at Celebrate Recovery. But here's my definition. Yeah, most people there are there for codependency. They, they may not know it, but that's why they're there. Here's my definition of codependency in the church. This is, this is my version. Codependency in the church is when someone takes Christ's place in another person's yoke. In other words, they try to replace Christ as your Savior. They try to control you, and they will make the crisis about them. So we must bring only our trusted friends, the most spiritually mature believers, into our grief with us so that we have prayer and we have encouragement and we have godly counsel. So Jesus gathers his friends, his most trusted friends. He asks them to pray with him. And now Jesus himself turns to the Father. Verse 39. This is the key verse of the passage. Key verse. Jesus went on a little bit farther and bowed with his face to the ground. What else is that called? Prostrate. He prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Jesus falls down before the Father and he pleads in his suffering. In distress and anguish, we pray with a prostrated heart, pleading in worship and submission. In distress and anguish, we pray with a prostrated heart, pleading in worship and submission. And I know the word prostrate, it's a weird word, it sounds churchy, 
We don't use it in our everyday language. It sounds strange to our ears, but honestly, it's the only word that truly describes. There's no other word that matches it that describes how we come before God in our greatest distress. Remember last week when we talked about Jehoshaphat and when he admitted that he was powerless before God and he was looking for direction, it says that he fell prostrate before God. So what does it mean? If you're not familiar with the word, that's okay. We don't use it in our everyday language. Here's what the dictionary says. Prostrate means to put oneself in a humble and submissive posture or state, stretched out with face on the ground in adoration, worship, or submission. Jesus falls down prostrate, pleading in worship and submission to the Father's will. Look at verse 39 again, the end of it. Jesus prays, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Don't miss this. There are two things Jesus is praying for in his suffering. First, he pleads for his suffering to be removed if it can be. But then he prays that it not be removed if God's greater purpose is in it. Jesus prays for it to be removed if it can, but for it to not be removed if God's greater purpose is in it. Was it sinful for Jesus to ask the Father to take the suffering away? No. We can plead to God in our suffering. But in our pleading, we also submit to God's greater plan. Because we know intellectually, don't we know in our heads that God works all things together for good, right? For those who are called according to his purpose and love him. That's Romans 8, 28. We all know that intellectually. But when you are in the depth of sorrow, when you're in the depth of grief, when you're in the depth of of suffering, it's impossible for us to see what good can come out of it. We can't see it because we don't have the perspective. We don't have the eternal perspective that God has. So can we grab hold of his strength, knowing that he will ultimately bring his glory into our pain? Because that's the promise of salvation, that he will bring his glory into our pain, into our suffering. Can we pray, God, take this suffering away? But if you have a greater purpose, if there's a greater reason that I can't see, a greater plan to use this suffering, I want your will, so give me the strength to endure it. Keep my eyes focused on you when the world tells me to look away. To get there, we need to pray for his strength and his protection in our suffering. So in distress and anguish, we pray for the strength and the protection from temptation. For strength and protection from temptation. We continue in verse 40. Then Jesus returned to the disciples and he found them asleep. He said to Peter, 
couldn't you watch with me even for one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation for the spirit is willing but the body is weak. The spirit is willing but the body or the flesh is weak. So that means we've got to pray together for God's strength in trials. First, so that we can endure suffering, but also so that we don't fall into temptation. Now, from here, the rest of the scene, it sort of goes back and forth between Jesus praying and what's happening with the disciples. So let's read the rest of the scene so that we get the full flavor of what's happening, and then we'll break the rest of it down, okay? Let's reread verse 41. Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time, and he prayed, My father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they could not keep their eyes open. That's an important line. Remember that. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. Then he came to the disciples, and he said, Go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up. Let's be going. My betrayer is here. Peter, James, and John don't come off looking very good in this, do they? So what's the reason? Do they not care? Are they just weak? You know, some people read this passage and they, they take it to mean that the disciples are dismissive, that they're saying, well, Jesus prays all the time and we're just so tired. But I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think that's go what's going on because of something, a little detail that Luke gives us. Matthew says they couldn't keep their eyes open, but Luke tells us why. Look at Luke 22. Jesus returned to the disciples only to find them asleep, exhausted from grief. They were exhausted because they were grief-stricken. One translation of the word grief here means bitter sorrow. They had entered into Christ's grief with Him. That's why He chose these three. They had entered into the grief with him. And don't forget, they had just come from the Last Supper, which is where Jesus described to them the fact that he was going to be captured, arrested, and killed, and that he was leaving them. These men weren't apathetic. These men were broken, and they were scared, and they were filled with grief. But here's the difference. Listen. The difference is this. Jesus leaned into his anguish with God. But the disciples only settled into their grief and surrendered to it, and it overtook them. Grief is real. Your suffering is real. And when we try to navigate that by ourselves, when we try to walk through that anguish by ourselves, we can do incredible damage to ourselves. That's why we bring other trusted people along with us. 
That's why we have to lean into God's goodness when we can't see any goodness in this broken world. And that's why Jesus is pleading, pleading with his friends to pray for God's strength and protection from temptation. And what specific temptation do you think he's warning them against? What temptation do they need to pray against in this moment? What do you think? What is it? Vengeance. vengeance is an excellent answer I had not thought of, but yes, I like that. I mean, I don't like vengeance, but it's a good answer. What else? Obedience to God, Obedience to God or the temptation to not be obedient. What's that, Richard? Denying Jesus out of fear. That's exactly right. It's the temptation that's coming in just a few minutes to deny Christ and to abandon their faith and run from their faith. And by the end of this night, it's exactly what all of them are going to do. They're all going to run. They're going to hide. They're going to deny Christ. They're going to deny their faith. When Christ returns a third time from praying, he says, well, you might as well sleep now. You know why he says that? Because there's no more time left. The opportunity to pray with Jesus for the strength they were going to need for what's coming is gone. They missed it. So Jesus says, get up. It's too late. My betrayer's already here. We have to go. And in a few moments, Jesus will be arrested and his followers will be scattered in fear and uncertainty. But what might have happened, what might have happened if they leaned into the Father with their grief with Jesus Christ instead of surrendering to their suffering? What kind of strength might they have had? Listen, if you don't hear anything else today, hear this. When we face our darkest moments, we will be brought to our knees and surrender. But you can choose. You can choose whether you surrender yourself to the grief or you surrender the grief to God. The disciples surrendered to their suffering and they collapsed under the weight of it. But Jesus surrendered his grief to the Father and he, and he received strength for the trial. Luke adds another detail that Matthew doesn't tell us. It says this, that after Jesus prayed, yet I want your will to be done, not mine, then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. Jesus goes from being completely crushed by anguish to getting up and walking straight into the suffering with peace and purpose. And he did that by embracing God's purpose in the suffering. And we can do that too. In distress and anguish, we pray embracing God's purpose in victory. 
In distress and anguish, we pray, embracing God's purpose in victory. Jesus received strength to endure the suffering, but he also marched forward in the Father's victory. The first time Jesus prays, he says, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. He says, take it away from me. But after the angel strengthens him, And he goes back to pray a second time. His wording is a little bit different. It's a slight difference, but it's an important one. Verse 42 again. He says, My father, if this cup cannot be taken away, more literally, it's if this cup cannot pass. It's important. Unless I drink it, your will be done. Anyone know what the cup of suffering represents in the Old Testament? It's used many times in the Old Testament. You know what it stands for, what it's a symbol of? Yes, God's wrath. I don't know who said that, but I like the confidence and the strength, and it's exactly right. It represents God's wrath against sin. So Jesus is saying, if your wrath against sin can't be satisfied unless I take it, then I want your plan to be done. In other words, if there's no other way to save these people, if there's no other way to undo the curse of sin, if there's no other way to deal with the evil in this world, if there's no other way for them to be with me in in eternity, if our holy wrath needs to fall on someone to save them, let it be me. Let Let it be me. Your will be done. And what was the Father's answer to his question? No. No. My son, there's no other way. You need to take on the sins of this world on your shoulders. You need to be separated from me. You need to suffer if you want the suffering to pass over these people. But the father also said, I will give you strength I will give you strength to endure it, my son, and when it's over, when you cry out, it is finished from that cross, you will be glorified with me for eternity. And when we embrace his purpose and his victory in our suffering, he makes us the exact same promise. Says this, in his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you have suffered a little while, he will restore and support and strengthen you and he will place you on a firm foundation. Look at our theme verse at the top of your outline. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later.
God's victory is always greater than our suffering. God's victory is always greater than our suffering. And that's why we take communion so seriously. That's why we reflect so deeply when we share in the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper represents the suffering Christ took in our place so that we could walk through everything in His victory and then ultimately into eternity with Him. Shortly before Jesus prayed in the garden, before His arrest, we already said He shared the Last Supper with His disciples. It's in the same chapter. Go back up just a few verses in the same chapter, verse 26. And listen to what Jesus says. And this all ties together. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and he blessed it. Then he broke it into pieces and he gave it to his disciples saying, take this and eat it for this is my body. And he took the, say it, he took the cup of wine and gave thanks to it. He gave it to them and he said, each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the new covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive many for their sins. And 1 Corinthians adds that Jesus also said in this moment, do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Do you see the significance? You see the significance of the communion cup when we compare it to the cup that Jesus prayed about in the garden? In the Passover feast, there are four cups of wine. The third one, and it was the third one, which Christ is offering as a symbol of his sacrifice in blood, That cup is called the cup of redemption. The cup of redemption. Don't miss this. We only get to drink from Christ's cup of redemption because he drank our cup of wrath. He drank the cup of wrath so that we could have the cup of redemption. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's a time to evaluate our hearts and reflect on the anguish that He took on in our place so that the cup of God's wrath would go to Him and we could drink from the cup of redemption. And we want to reflect on that together today. So if you didn't receive the elements when you came in, just raise your hands. A volunteer will bring you some. If you're watching in our online campus, you can use whatever You have available, as JC said earlier, what's more important is your heart. But listen carefully, this is a practice specifically for believers. So if you don't feel ready to participate, that's okay. You're welcome here. Don't feel pressured. But this is something specifically for those who call Jesus Lord. Communion is meant to be an intimate moment between you and God and the people that you are sharing his victory with. So when the early church shared in the Lord's Supper, they did it in their homes. They did it together in small groups. And they didn't have a pastor to lead them. So you know how they did it? We have no idea. 
We have no idea, which is great because that means you can't do it wrong. There are no instructions except to evaluate our hearts and reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They just figured it out so we can figure it out. So just as they did it together in homes and in small groups, we're going to do it together in our prayer circles today. And you can't do it wrong. So when I say go, just as we've done the last four weeks, get up, get into groups of five or six people around you, make sure no one gets left out. Pray with us if you're online. Make sure no one's left out, and we'll pray together for this week's prayer prompts. You don't have to pray them exactly, right? This is just a starting point. But we pray first a prayer of praise for His sacrifice to bring us eternal life and His glory in Christ's resurrection. We want to pray for Him to teach us to examine our hearts and live in His victory, to make us a church that is an ambassador of His victory even in our suffering, especially in our suffering, and then to bless our time of communion. And then in whatever way the Spirit leads you, you share the elements together in your group. And then I'll come back and I'll close out the series and close out our time together. This is a time of reflection and an intimate time together to reflect on what Christ has done for us. Are you ready? I want to thank all of you if we just turn back here for just a few moments. I want to thank all of you for praying together and being willing to do things that are different. This series, we didn't do things the way we normally do them. But as we wrap up this series, I will ask you one more time, do we want to see revival? then this can't be the end of the series. We have to have this be the beginning of a prayer revival so that we can see soul revival. So please pray, I plead with you, pray and fast together for Brookwood Church and for your families. Pray in your families. Pray in your community groups. Fast together. Join our prayer teams If you personally need prayer, we want to support you. Come down front after our our pastors and our care volunteers will be here and in our care connection room. We're here every single week. But don't let the enemy snatch away what is happening in this church right now. He will try to make us feel apathetic. He'll try to make us move on with what the next series is. But no, God wants to do something through Brookwood Church. He wants to bring revival to our community. He wants to save souls, but we have to surrender to Him. So are we willing to do these things together? Then we continue together. And I will meet all of you in the amphitheater (laughs) by 7 a.m. tomorrow morning. God has incredible things planned for Brookwood Church. We just have to keep moving forward together continually and in one voice. And we close out this series by praying the words of Paul. Father God, we pray just as you had and inspired Paul to write. We pray that you would guide us to be in the spirit at all times and in every occasion. Guide us to stay alert 
and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. And may we not stop until we see your revival and your reviving hand on this community. We pray it in one voice and we say together mightily, together, amen. amen. Thank you and God bless. We are so glad you joined us for our podcast. This week's memory verse is Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory He will reveal to us later. Next Sunday is Easter. We celebrate Jesus' resurrection and learn about having a personal encounter with Him. We hope you'll join us for our services next Saturday, April 16th at 5 p.m. and Sunday, April 17th at 9 and 11 in the morning. To prepare, read Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. At Brookwood, we want to help you pursue a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience a transformed life. One way you can do this is by getting connected at Brookwood. You can email us, connections at brookwoodchurch.org, or call 864-688-8326 to speak to someone on our Connections team. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast, and if you like what you hear, please leave a review so others can discover how they can have a transformed life in Christ as well. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.